Let me give you an introduction of the next three weeks, including today. You might remember that before Christmas, we were in a series in the book of Colossians. And we'll get back to Colossians, Lord willing, the first Sunday in February. So three Sundays before that. And we'll do something of a mini-series. Now you might remember, if you've been here for a year or more, that once a year we do something with a bit of a hokey name. It kind of stuck. The State of the Communion Address. Like the State of the Union Address the President does, but we're, we're not just a union. We're in communion. We're in fellowship, so we call it the State of the Communion Address. And it's something like a, a locker room talk, something like a family room talk. Uh, it's vision casting, reviewing how we've been doing, what we need to, to focus on in the next year or more to come. Last year, we also put something alongside that. We did a, an elder Q&A at our Lord's Supper that was closest to the State of the Communion Sunday. So we're coming up on that. We'll do a, a, an elder Q&A at the Lord's Supper on January 26th, just, just a couple of weeks away, basically, a week and a half, in fact. And then over these next three weeks, we'll basically spread out this State of the Communion address thing. Um, We'll spend three weeks on three words we use around here to describe what we do. Worship, community, and mission. With a sermon, a message on each of these words. Now why? Well, because for one, we use these words, worship, community, mission, often around here. We drop them a lot around here. Announcements frequently begin by saying, we do worship community mission around here. And then let's focus in on this specific part of mission and an opportunity to do mission in this next week or whatever. We talk about it often, but we haven't spent much time unpacking them. And there's always a danger of getting religious language, adopting new terminology, repeating it, being excited about it. And having an inability to define it, to articulate it, to explain it maybe even. So my goals over these next three weeks are to show us just how important these three things are to excite us about and propel us into these things more and more, and also to show us just how much overlap there is between these things, just how interconnected these three words are so that we can see and love and grow in what is the centerpiece of them all, the very thing that connects them all, of course, which is Jesus and his gospel. So worship community mission. About a year ago, I put a chart up on the screen for you, a chart we're wanting you to get to know, not just these three words, community, worship, and mission. And of course, you can see there, worship's the center, even though when we say it around here, we say worship first, community, then mission, sort of like order of importance in a sense, or a logical, maybe even chronological order at times. Here you see it's in the middle because worship is the thing that is shared between community and mission the most. In other words, there's overlap. In doing worship, in part, we are doing mission. If you're you're an unbeliever, you're not a Christian, you're here today, you're witnessing worship, and we think in part that has a, a purpose in our mission in spreading God's glory in this world, and we want you to buy into it. It's it's part of our mission. 
Well, all these things are for God's glory. So that's what we talk about often around here, maybe even on a higher umbrella level, sort of 50,000 foot view. We say it's spreading God's glory broader and deeper. That's what we're doing as a church. It's our mission, our vision. I get confused which is the right word. It's a vision statement. It's a mission statement. I don't know. The big one is spreading God's glory broader and deeper. Underneath that, three ways in which we do that are these. Community, worship, and mission. But the gospel undergirds all of them. It feeds into all of them. We we believe around here that the gospel is not something we graduate from. It's not something we embrace and then move on to, uh, move on from. But instead, we constantly go back to it. Just as we've been singing about it this morning. Gospel is what fuels our worship. It's what binds our community. It's the message of our mission. Now, where do we get all this stuff? Scripture. Scripture is the thing that feeds into all of this. How would we know to put God's glory at the top? How would we know that three primary principles of what the church is and, and does would be worship, community, mission, unless we were told these things in Scripture. Scripture directs how we do all these things, directs that these things be priorities, and then we move on to specifics, whatever else you want to call. Just last week was our, um, what do we call it, ministry fair? Where we have in that room, the youth room over there, 20-some ministries, different tables. You could sign up to serve in different ministries here. Well, they're all an expression of this chart, you could say. Scripture's directing them, influencing them. Here are priorities. And then we get into specific ways in which we do these things. So back to my main point. That's a review from last year. I want to focus on worship this morning. Just about a year ago, we introduced this worship community mission to you. And one of the ways that I introed it to you was to ask you how you would describe Desert Springs Church to a friend who doesn't know. What would you say Desert Springs Church is about? So you might say, spreading God's glory broader and deeper. Here we are a year later, you might actually mention worship, community, mission. But this year, I want to get more specific and... And ask you again to imagine a discussion with your friend, maybe an unbelieving friend, maybe a believer that goes to a different church, but they ask you about your church, or maybe just more generally you're talking about what the Bible says a church is, what the Bible says a church should do. And you say something like worship community mission, and they respond with the question, what is worship? What do you mean? I worship. What do you what do you have in mind when you say worship? Describe worship for me. What would you say? Singing? It's the praise time. What would you say? Well, there are a lot of ways to answer this, right? And that's what I want to try to do today is give you some ways in which to answer this. What do we mean by worship when we talk about worship community? mission. Well, turn to 1 Peter 2 in your Bibles with me. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read a section here that gives us sort of the skeletal structure of worship. It gives us something of an x-ray of what's going on below the surface in our worship. 1 Peter 2, we'll start in verse 4. Peter writes, 
as you come to him, to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him, notice the stone is a him, he will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, and for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, Christians, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. How shall we understand this passage? Let's start with this. We see that this is about a house. A house for God's presence. But in the outline I have house in quotations here because it's a house of people. Notice the living stones. Stones that are living. Stones are never living. What is this talking about? It's talking about people as living stones. Obviously, it's a word picture, an illustration for us. Now, stones, by their very nature, go together, right? Bricks go together. Why would someone in first century times, or say, you know, B.C. times, long before first century, why would they take a, a giant stone and shape it into the shape of a of a cornerstone, or of a, what we would call a very large brick. They're making something, right? They're building a wall. These stones are made to go together. That's the very nature of them. What do you call a brick that's all by itself? That's trash. It's nothing. It's an, it's an overkill paperweight. It's what vandals use to smash windows. A brick by itself is, it's not being used, that for which it was made. And just like bricks, just like these stones, we, Christians, people in general were made to go together. Christians especially. You see this in Ephesians 2, kind of the sister passage of 1 Peter 2. Ephesians 2 says, in whom the whole structure, in Jesus, this whole temple structure is being joined together. You see that? It's growing into a holy temple of the Lord, in whom you also are being built together. You see? The stones go together for a dwelling place for God. No island Christianity here. No, just me and Jesus and my Bible here in this passage or for that matter, any other passage in the Bible. To say that we want Jesus but we don't want any form of a church is really to not want Jesus. 
that's not overstated. Remember when, when Saul, before he was the apostle Paul, when he was persecuting the church, Jesus went to him and said, why are you persecuting me? What, what you? I mean, yeah, I stood there and watched Stephen get stoned. I persecuted him, sure. I didn't persecute you. What you did to the least of them, you have done it unto me, Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels. So, just like bricks were made to go together, people were made to go together. There's no island Christianity here. And there's purpose with these stones being shaped and being built to go together. They're making a dwelling place for God. As I already hinted, this is temple language. This is borrowing Old Testament concepts of God's house, the place for his presence. We talked about this sometime right before Christmas, if you remember, about how the presence of God is this major theme in the Bible. And so you can see it promised and then foreshadowed in things like getting to a land of his presence or, or, or moving from a tabernacle. God's in a tent. That's where he dwells into a, a temple, a permanent place for the dwelling of God. And his glory enters the temple after it was built there by Solomon. Well, that kind of language now here is being used about people. that God dwells in them. Notice it says in verse 5, it is being built. It's, it's in process. And think both in terms of it being bigger and stronger as it's being built. In other words, people, these living stones are being added. New stones are laid all the time as a new person comes to believe that Christ is Savior and Lord. Confess him and follow after him. And also these stones themselves that have been part of the temple of God for a decade, three decades, five decades for some of you. They're still works in progress, aren't they? They're still being shaped in accordance with the pattern of the cornerstone. These stones are getting better, cleaner, prettier, stronger. The building is becoming more and more of what it was intended to be all along. Oh, I know the church has many flaws. And every individual Christian in those churches have their many flaws. But thank God we're not what we used to be. Thank God for what he has done. Not just additions to the temple, but also renovations to this temple that's being built. By the way, how are these stones being built? How is this temple growing? Well, we're kind of mixing metaphors here, but look just one verse before what we started. Actually, two. Verse 2, chapter 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you might grow into salvation. So there, Peter's talking about Christians as babies. And the way Christians long for the word should be something like the way babies long for a mother's milk. We long for the word and we are grown through the word. That's how the temple in part is being built and how the temple is growing. Now, I think we have to pause here and 
think big picture. We have to remember that worship is transformed a bit in the New Testament compared with the Old Testament. Again, we had several messages on that as we got ready for Christmas and and spent some time over the Christmas holiday thinking through how the Old Testament anticipated Christ. Well, we need to remember this, that worship in the Old Testament was about event, place. Worship in the Old Testament had to do with action, thing. So you would go to that place. You would burn something. You would take this thing and put it there. In fact, the most common Hebrew word used for worship throughout the Old Testament literally means to bow. It's something you do with your body. In the New Testament, that changed. And you see something of the transformation of what worship is in the coming of Jesus in John chapter 4. Jesus is there talking to the woman at the well. She's a Samaritan woman. And so she asked Jesus a theological question. She says, we're Samaritans, you're a Jew. Where do you think we're supposed to worship God? We worship on that mountain. You Jews worship God on that mountain. Which mountain do you think is right? And Jesus says, oh, the day is coming. And it now is. Where you will neither worship the Father on that mountain or this mountain. But you will worship him, what? In spirit and in truth. John 4, 24. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. No longer about place. No longer merely about action. Spirit and truth. Heart and head. Thoughts and affections. Thoughts that get him right. Because they're according to his word and affections that are real and genuine, not merely worked up, trumped up, like some clown at the circus can get happy. But affections that are based on those thoughts. Folks, this is why when we, when we sing together as a church, we're looking for songs that aren't one word, two notes, three hours. We're looking for wordy songs because we have a wordy God, right? We have a descriptive God. We have a God who's revealed himself in manifold ways, and we want to find songs that describe him as he is and how he's shown himself to be. You can think of three T's for what worship is. Think, treasure, That's the heart part, right? That's the affections. And tell. If it's merely thinking and feeling and it stops there, then maybe it isn't worship. There's something in Scripture about us telling him that he's great and greatly to be praised. It's not the telling alone that's worship. So that anyone who can sing a good hymn is worshiping God. Even Christians can sing a good hymn and it not be worship. You need the head. You need the heart. And you also need to tell. Think, treasure, tell, repeat. That's worship. That's all you do. And hopefully as you keep repeating, it keeps growing. Thoughts get bigger. 
The affections rise higher. The telling gets louder. Worship in the New Testament takes, as we saw from 1 Peter 2 already, takes Old Testament worship terminology, concepts, language, whatever you'd call it, and it injects fresh meaning into them. Now, I want to show you this in several passages. Look for the Old Testament worship language in these New Testament passages. Listen to Romans 12.1. Some of you have that memorized. Where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. Present there as sacrificial language. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. See how that's different than the Old Covenant? In the Old Covenant, the sacrifice meant it died. As soon as you said sacrifice, you meant we're going to slay this thing. Well, now this is a living sacrifice. Our bodies are living sacrifices to the Lord. Now, they can be, by the mercies of God, holy and acceptable to Him. This is spiritual worship. See, Paul's taking Old Testament concepts and injecting them with fresh meaning in a spiritual way. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is within us now. And hence, we're not our own. We've been bought with a price. If this body is the temple of God, then I need to glorify God with my body. Ephesians 2 is another one of these passages. I already quoted a bit of it. The sister passage to 1 Peter 2, where it says, Your fellow citizens now, you are saints and members of the household of God. You've been built in the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And goes on to to talk about what we've already read, that we're a holy temple for the Lord. We are being built for a dwelling place for God. Or in Philippians 2, verse 17, Paul says, Even if I'm going to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad. He's talking about his life and the end of his life. The end of his life being killed for the faith, Paul calls an offering. It's being spilled out. Again, Old Testament worship language. Ephesians, sorry, Philippians 4.18 also talks about Epaphras, Epaphroditus and the gifts that he sent from the Philippians to Paul, which were a fragrant offering, a sacrifice which was acceptable and pleasing to God. You do worship, here Paul says, in meeting needs. But no surprise, Hebrews 13 says, through Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. No surprise there. Sacrifice of praise to God. But then, listen, Do not neglect to do good, to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now, the new covenant sacrifices are not something spilled out, not something poured out, not something burnt, something given, something shared. And then 1 Peter 2, verse 5 and verse 9, again uses this language, So we've already read about spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus. How we're now royal priests doing his work. So prayer can be worship in the new covenant. 
especially thanksgiving, according to Hebrews 13. Holiness is worship. Realizing that my body's not my own is worship to the Lord. Whole lives are to be worship, according to Romans 12. Service for others is worship. Meeting needs is worship. Sharing what you have now can be worship. Anything done to the glory of God, even the most mundane things like eating and drinking, 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us, can be done to God's glory. But like these Old Testament counterparts, right? Because this is Old Testament language, now hijacked in a sense for God's glory, in a new way, a fresh living way. This all has to do with God's presence. You see? Temple language means God's there. And now this temple language is scattered into all of life so that anything can be worshipped and everything can be worshipped. It's acknowledging his presence. So if we're looking for perhaps the smallest definition of worship, granted, I told you at the beginning, here's an answer for you to tell your friends about what worship is when they ask you, if they ever ask you. And I'm going to go on for about you know, 30 more minutes on this stuff, and you're not going to remember half of it, or, well, you're not going to remember one-tenth of it. But remember this, worship is acknowledging the presence of God. Worship is the presence of God. That's really what it is all about. And there are really two, bear with me, there are two big theological words that are worth memorizing about this. That in acknowledging the presence of God, what we're doing is acknowledging that he is, on the one hand, transcendent. Big word, right? It means he's big. It means he's beyond us. He's beyond our comprehension. He transcends our thoughts, our imaginations. And yet the other word is that he's imminent, which means he's close. He's near. When we talk about the presence of God as one way in which we think about worship, What we're saying is, on the one hand, worship acknowledges he is big. He's grand. He is awful. Perhaps you haven't thought about saying to God that he is awful before. But in olden days, they used to. It would be, he is awe-filling. We might be more comfortable with that today, but still, the same concept. He is awful. He awe-filling. And yet, if it's worship, and it's to him, he's near, right? He hears. He cares. He tells us to tell him, to call on him, to praise him, to glorify him. Transcendent and imminent. Okay, a house for God's presence. The second thing you see in your notes here is that Peter's talking about a people for God's praise. See in verse 9, a people, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into light. And then look at the the rest of verse 5. We've been camping out on sort of the first half of verse 5 so far. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. That's a temple. Now here's the second half, to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
So we've seen that the people of God make up a temple for God's holy presence. All of us Christians are like little temples. We are traveling temples for the glory of God all through the week. We've seen that prayer and service and lives, sharing, eating and drinking, all this can be worship. And now, here in the second half of verse 5, we see that we are a people for God's praise. All the people who are Christians are priests doing work that is holy, set apart for the Lord. Everyone does special holy work now. It used to be in the old days, the old covenant, the priest did that stuff. You brought a lot of times your sacrifice to him and he'd take it from there. You're not a priest. You don't cut that. You don't present that. You can't burn that. But now in Christ, we've all been made holy enough that we all do these holy things. Oh, not the holy things of cutting that, burning that, presenting that, but all of life, the glory of God. Now, all of these little things, whether it's eating or drinking or sharing, sending, telling, caring, all these things now are special holy work done by his priests. But where? Where do we do this? When do we do this? Here's another way to ask the question, has worship now in the New Testament been so flattened out into all of life that, frankly, we're wasting our time here this morning? You could have done this at home. You could have done this on top of Sandia Peak. You could have done this out hunting. Is it so that there's no official worship now? There's no special worship now? There's no meeting for worship now? Well, let me give you different kinds of worship. Let me explain to you, I guess you could say, different spheres of worship or different places for worship. There are four of them. The first is everything everywhere worship. We've already talked about this. Worship as you go. Worship which acknowledges that we're the dwelling place of God. Worship which acknowledges that we're the temple and he's with us. So now all of life is to be lived out in the temple. All of life is an expression of priestly work, doing his work, whatever we're doing, to his glory. That's everything, everywhere worship. Secondly, there's private worship. Private worship is what you do, maybe you call it devotions. It's personal Bible reading and prayer. Some of you call it your prayer closet. Some of you call it quiet time. Whatever you call it, it's that thing that we need to do where we get alone with God and we don't just listen to people. We read his word. We take time for for solitude, even silence sometimes. We meditate in his word. We pray it back to him. We cast our burdens on him. Private worship. Third, there's family worship. It's not so much talked about in the New Testament. It's implied You see it perhaps best in Deuteronomy 6, back then when God said, here's how this thing's going to keep in the household of God, the family of God. You're going to tell it to your sons and daughters. When you rise up, you'll talk about them. When you go to bed, you'll talk about them. When you go out, 
from the door, you'll talk about them. When you come in through the door, you'll talk about them. You'll put signs all over your house so that it'll remind you. We'll give you meals so that your kids ask, what's this about? And you'll tell them. So that kind of family worship can be a, a special meeting for your family. Perhaps you do it after dinner every night or a few nights a week or something. Or maybe you have a special evening where you really focus on Bible reading and prayer together as a family. Or maybe it's more like Deuteronomy 6 and it's scattered throughout. It mingles more of everyday, everything worship with, well, teaching your kids or talking with your spouse about these things. So there's everything everywhere worship. There's private worship, family worship, and last is corporate worship, what we're doing right now. Corporate worship isn't just the singing part of what we do in a Sunday morning. In fact, believe it or not, you could almost put singing in the communion section, the community section of worship, community, mission. Because singing is just as much about encouraging others around us. Colossians 3.16 says, we're not just singing to God, we're singing to each other with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing, yes, is worship. It's vertical, but it's also horizontal. The point is just this, that when we talk about worship, the church's worship, we don't just mean singing. We mean the singing, the preaching, the reading of Scripture, the praying together. Right now, you should be worshiping. When we meet for the Lord's Supper... That's corporate worship. Now let me do this. Let me focus in on two of these four. So four things I describe for you about different contexts for worship, different kinds of worship. Let me just focus on the first and the fourth. Not because the other two aren't important, but because most of us tend toward one of two extremes. Some find corporate worship easy. That's a given. They grew up going. And others see individual, private worship as everything. That's it. That's where it's really at, getting alone with God in the woods. Or your hike, or your car, or whatever. There can be an over-individualization of worship that neglects the church. Doesn't see the purpose of the church. And there can be an over-institutionalization of where we think that corporate worship is just going. So let's talk about this first one. What does everything, everywhere worship look like? Well, it's related to walking in the Spirit, Galatians 5. It's related to praying without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5. The way one older book put it is, it's practicing His presence. It's not pretending that we're in a monastery. Every day, everywhere worship isn't ignoring people because we're in the presence of God. No, 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 don't talk to me, boss. I'm in the presence of God right now. It's not even not being able to give your all to what you're doing because you also have to juggle worship into the mix. Rather, it's relating things to him. We get the chance to. It's taking burdens to him right when they come up, not when they get real bad. 
giving thanks to him at every opportunity for thanks. You say, whoa, there's no way I'll give thanks to him for every opportunity of thanks that I encounter in a day. I know, I know, but, but it means you're striving towards that. You're working to see it. You're trying more and more to live consciously as a priest, acknowledging more and more that this simple thing is holy work and can be done consciously to God's glory, remembering that we're in his temple, wherever we are. G.K. Beale, a New Testament scholar, will be with us in April for a conference, and he's written a book called The Temple and the Church's Mission. It's about the presence of God, that theme that's traced throughout Scripture. His wife writes the preface to the book. Dorinda was with us a few years ago. Sweet, sweet um, woman, passionate about the, the word of God, passionate about her husband's ministry. Anyway, this preface describes the reality of the temple presence of God that's around us all the time in a great way. She gives this illustration. They used to live in England, and one day they were invited to a, a picnic at a, a country mansion, a country estate. So Dorinda is there with her three-year-old walking about. You know, of course, she's admiring the lawns, you know, the, the, the groomed shrubs, beautiful old building, right, this home. And she can tell that her daughter doesn't have a clue why this is so special. You know, the daughter's just thinking, yeah, get another sandwich, yeah, skip over here, you know, chase that grasshopper. The things that three-year-olds notice so well. And so Dorinda writes in this preface, that she said to her daughter, she grabbed her, her hands and said to her daughter, Sweetheart, you're very young. You don't understand how special this is. Please try to remember this day. Look around and remember this day. You'll want to remember it later. So she says, we're like three-year-olds. We're in the presence of God. We're in his temple. We're his priests doing his holy work. You don't know how special it is. Or another way to think about this, use my own very less posh illustration. It's like trying to remember that you're in the Matrix, right? <laughs> Except the Matrix wasn't reality. But remember, you know, Keanu Reeves would be in the Matrix. And I'm sure every now and then his brain would just resort to everyday life like he knew before he took the pill. And entered this whole thing, you know, this whole world. Before then, he just went about life. And I'm sure every now and then, he would enter the matrix and just think everyday life. Forget that this actually isn't real. Instead, his, his brain is plugged into this show. Well, that's fake. But it's an unseen reality for us with the temple. We're in it. Everything's priestly work. We have to keep reminding ourselves. It's all around us. He's here. This is special. You're walking down that hall now. In his temple. You're on your computer right now. In his temple. You sing right now in your car. In his temple. You make love. In your bed, in his temple, he's with us. He cares. And this is now, not just someday in the future. 
Now let's talk about corporate worship and ask, what's so special about Sundays then? Why bother if we can do worship anywhere and everywhere? I just got done saying, you can do worship anywhere and everywhere, and we need to give ourselves to it and grow in that. Yes and amen. And we need Sunday mornings. We need to come together as living stones for more of the temple, for a different experience of his presence, right? If you're a little temple and I'm a little temple and we come together, we have more of his temple presence. And that's what we want. I think the difference between everyday, everything worship and corporate worship, what we're doing right now, is like the difference between a jog and the sprint at the end of your jog. How many of you are runners? Go ahead. Don't be embarrassed. You should be proud of yourself. Go ahead. They'll give you a hand for running so much. How many of you are runners? Come on. Now, how many of you, keep your hands up, if you do a good, hard sprint at the end of your run? I used to. Can I put my hand up for that? I used to. And I loved that. I loved getting that last half mile and then it felt like your, your legs were almost doing like the, the road runner on Bugs Bunny, just a big circle, right? It felt like you had that stride and you can just pour it out because you're going to be done soon. Dead, yeah, practically speaking, lung hurting, sure, throwing up if you have to, but it'll be done soon. And you pour it out and it feels good. Well, most of us don't treat corporate worship that way, but we should. And for us, corporate worship isn't the end of the race. Sunday is the beginning of the week. We've forgotten that. We keep calling it the weekend. I'd almost challenge you to fight against that. Say, say on Sunday morning, how is your weekend? People go, what? We're still in it. Oh, no, no. Saturday was the week's end. This is the first day of the week. We've set aside the first day of the week for the worship of God. We need his presence and we should come to go hard after him. This should be our sprint. This should be our sprint that propels us into this coming week. This is the big push. This is the the full stride of our week. And yet, I think most of us often coast into Sunday mornings. We run hard with everything throughout the week. We run hard at work. We run hard with our recreation. Some of us run hard literally. We run hard at the kids' sports. Some of you run hard at their education. And then coast in here. Because there's nothing... You need to do nothing that's you're responsible for, nothing you'll be in trouble if you don't have. Maybe we're too passive about all this. Someone has said Americans work at their play, they play at their worship, and they worship their work. But remember what Jesus told Martha? She was working hard in the kitchen and complaining and Luke 10, Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. One thing, sitting at his feet, it's more necessary than dinner. It's certainly more necessary than soccer. 
certainly more necessary than over time. So God meets with us in a special way, in a unique unique way in Sunday mornings, even when we don't feel like it. So we need to ask him to reveal himself. We need to ask him to give us what we need in corporate worship. It sounds selfish. We pray all kinds of selfish prayers, but we're afraid to pray that one. We should say, Lord, give me what I need this morning. I'm coming restless. I got problems. Will you use the preaching of your word and the singing of your people and the prayers of the saints to fix me, to straighten me, to give me perspective, to give me strength? And come with expectancy that he will. Come with anticipation. Maybe some of you will take up this challenge. Just to pray on your way in. You say, I got, I got kids. They're crazy. I know. I got crazy kids too. <laughs> I, I usually come in much earlier than my wife when I'm preaching. And so we, we haven't ridden together for church in years on a regular basis. But whenever we do, whenever I have a Sunday off and we're riding in together, our kids know we just we pray. We pray on the way in. We need to prepare our hearts. Maybe. You, you say, I just cussed at my wife in front of my kids, and you're going to tell me I should say, all right, now let's pray. Yes! If you don't need it then, when did you need it? Right? Absolutely pray then. It's not like God didn't know you said it. It's not like he's going to, uh, 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 no, you get out of here until you do pen. No, we come in the blood of Christ. We have to get our souls happy in God. Let me give you a quote from Pastor John Piper. He says, Nothing makes God more supreme and more central than when a people are utterly persuaded that nothing, not money or prestige or leisure or family or job or health or sports or toys or friends, is going to bring satisfaction to their aching hearts besides God. This conviction breeds a people who passionately long for God on Sunday morning. They are not confused about why they are there. They do not see songs and prayers and sermons as mere traditions or mere duties. They see them as means of getting God or God getting to them for more of his fullness. Now, none of us should feel like good worshipers right now. None of us should hear all this and say, you got it. I do it. That's what I do. It sounds just like me. No, but look, we have a cornerstone. The third thing, a cornerstone that's precious. We stand alone on the gospel of Christ, that he's our hope. We're not good worshipers. This church isn't a great worshiping church. But it's a church that loves the blood of Christ. I see that. We want more of it, right? And that's what will motivate us to sing loudly. That's what will motivate us to leave here forgiven and free. Not threatened to acknowledge the temple around us, but free, joyfully free to acknowledge his presence in our midst with whatever we're doing.